Hey there, history fans. And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And before we get into today's topic, as you know, we have our Instagram and our Facebook pages, History Explains It All underscore podcast. Check us out there. That's where we put our Photo Fridays, Today in Histories, and Archaeology in the News posts. Also, where we put up polls where you vote for the episode, kind of like what we're going to do today. You voted for this episode. Woohoo! Yes, I'm that weird person. Uh, <laughs> and then also, if you want to get sent out a suggestion, historyexplainsall at gmail.com. We'd like to hear your thoughts, your suggestions, what you think is going to be a great idea, uh, anything like that. Also, leave us a rate, review, and comment, and that's how other people find us. We hope that you're enjoying this so far, because we sure are. We're just history nerds having a podcast. Is that what it is? I think it's a simplification of it. I mean, I think it's far more than that. But yes, we are definitely history nerds having a podcast. But let's get into today's episode on Centralia, Pennsylvania, which is all about what? Your turn, Melissa. (laughs) Um, I I just also want to start off that I've got a little bit of a cold. So if I sound a little different than normal, yeah, that's why. Yeah. It's been one weird weekend and very hot. So I apologize for the non-normal nasally congested voice i apologize all right so to start off we're going to talk about the origins of the town of centralia which can be found in the columbia county and pennsylvania here in the states and according to records the native american tribes several of them that were in the area sold the land to what was to become the county of columbia to the colonists there for about 500 pounds in 1749. I did the math. Today, there would be approximately uh, 118,125 pounds or roughly $140,492. There's some money there. Yeah, inflation. (laughs) Now, during the construction of... I'm looking at it and it says Reading Road and I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Reading, but I'm not quite sure. So we're going to go with Reading because Pennsylvania has some odd nam- uh, names to it. Um, the construction of Reading Road and 1770 surveyors began to look at the land in what was Columbia County. And the road would eventually stretch from Reading, Pennsylvania to Sunbury, Pennsylvania. And eventually that road would cross through what would become Centralia and be part of Route 61, one of the major highways that goes through Pennsylvania. In 1793, Robert Morris purchased the land that would become Centralia. And Morris was not just a hero of the Revolutionary War, but also a signer of the Declaration of Independence as well. Well, that's interesting. I had no idea about that. Well, you're going to have something to do. Most people went farming. That's true. Now, Morris bought the land in 1793 and would declare bankruptcy on the land five years later in 1798. 
and be sent to debtor's prison. The land would then be surrendered to the Bank of the U.S., and the land would remain there until 1830. That year, a French sea captain named Stephen Girard purchased the land for $30,000. More conversions coming your way. That's either $950,139 or 801,108 pounds. That's a fair amount of money. Girard was also an incredibly successful banker. And according to a statement on Wiki, but I also found this on a couple other sites, quote, he personally saved the U.S. government from financial collapse during the War of 1812 and became one of the wealthiest people in America, estimated to have been the fourth richest American of all time based on the ratio of his fortune to contemporary GDP. Huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was pretty intrigued by that. Um, he also had a fairly interesting life, and I'm pretty sure will be the source of a weird history at some point. I'm, I, I'm 100% positive of that one. Now, Girard also heard that there was anthracite coal in the area of what would become Centralia. Now, a short break from the story, because I didn't know what anthracite coal was. I've heard of it, but I didn't know anything about it. So we're going to do a quick deep dive. Anthracite coal is also known as black coal. It also has the highest carbon content of all coal, being around 86 to 97% carbon, as well as the highest energy density, making it the highest ranking of all coal that is collected worldwide, as well as it's also the cleanest burning coal. It's also, yes, cleans incredibly well. It's also incredibly difficult to burn anthracite, let alone ignite it. But if you're able to do so, it burns blue and smokeless. So it burns very hot. Now, anthracite is found in several countries around the world, but only makes up about 1% of the global coal reserves. The coal region of Pennsylvania is actually the largest known deposit of anthracite in the world. And it is estimated that in Pennsylvania, there are 7 billion short tons of it. And for those not familiar with that term here in the U.S., a short term, short ton is equal to 2,000 pounds or what we in the States here call a ton. So if you multiply 7 billion by 2,000, it equals about 14 trillion pounds weight wise of anthracite in Pennsylvania. If I understood that correctly. Yeah. Historically, anthracite had been in use in the U.S. since around 1790. In the early 1800s, it took off as a type of indoor fuel, as well as also massive amounts of mining and shipping with it, because you can use it for a variety of things. For a long while, it was even used for smelting before coke took over anthracite as a main fuel. Now, though it is difficult to ignite, that issue was actually solved in 1828 with the creation of the hot blast furnace, which used waste heat to preheat combustion air. From the late 1800s into the 1950s, anthracite was the number one method of fuel in heating various homes and buildings 
in the U.S. and in parts of the U.S., anthracite was still used up until the 1980s for heating in public buildings. And though it is still used in the world today, it has become far more expensive than regular coal. On average, as of 2008, anthracite coal cost $150 per short ton, so per 2,000 pounds, which is a lot more than normal coal. It is still mined throughout the world today. The U.S. production is estimated to be around 5 million short tons per year, with nearly 2 million coming from Pennsylvania alone. So now that we've taken that short detour into anthracite coal, let's get back to Centralia. Never would have thought of any of that. Well, I know Centralia, the, I know it's a big mining town, but I did not know anything about the anthracite coal. I know coal, and, and, but given what's, what we're going to get into later on and why Centralia is intriguing, unusual, fiery, uh anthracite makes a lot of sense that's an understatement (laughs) so after Girard bought the land he actually just did almost nothing with it at all for a while the town didn't even have its first official name until two years later in 1832 Jonathan Faust had opened the Bull's Head Tavern thus giving the area its first official name of Bull's Head In 1842, the land was bought by the Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company, and a mining engineer named Alexander Ray soon moved into town with his family and began to plan layouts and designated areas for development within the city to turn it into an actual town, particularly a a mining town. He then changed the name from Bull's Head to Centerville. In 1854, the Mine Run Railroad had been built and then brought a lot of success through the current city of Centerville. The railroad actually allowed literally tons of anthracite to be moved around the country. So shipping and distribution was massive once the railroad came through. In 1865, the town had to change its name because they wanted a post office. And the post office already had a Centerville office in Schuylkill County. So you can't have two post offices for two different Centervilles. And at the time, as far as I understood, they weren't doing zip codes. Yep, man. Yep, okay. Uh-huh. So with the need for a post office, Centerville then became Centralia. Now in terms of the mining, go ahead. I just said that makes sense. If you want to be an official town in the U.S., you have to have a post office. You got to get your mail somehow. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the, the, the mining for Centralia, as more and more mines were found in the area, because this is the coal region of Pennsylvania, there's a lot of mining, even to this day. Not as much, but still a lot. More and more people began to flock to now Centralia. And in 1856, two years after the railroad had begun, the Locust Run Mine and Coal Ridge Mine both opened up. This was then followed up by the uh, Hazeldell Colliery in 1860, the Centralia Mine in 1862, and the Continental Mine in 1863. Interestingly enough, the Continental was actually located on Girard's old estate. So he was correct, there was anthracite to be found in that city. 
Oh, yeah. The city became official after it received its first post office in 1866. And by this time, according to records, president, the, president, the residential population had increased to 1,300 residents. A very small, bustling town. Or a village. No, that's got a post office. Now it's an official town rather than a village. By the late 1860s, a group called the Molly Maguires had taken up root in the town. And for those not familiar, the Molly Maguires were a labor activist group that had originated in Ireland. And when they came to Pennsylvania, their plan was to organize the miners into, into unions and help improve wages and living conditions. But they weren't just activists and creating unions. They were also violent. On October 17th of 1868, the Molly Maguires quartered and murdered the town founder, Alexander Ray. Eventually, three men would be convicted of his murder and hung 10 years later on March 25th, 1878. A long time later. Yeah. But in terms of the Molly Maguires, by the previous year of 1877, most of the gang members had been arrested and hung for their crimes. Now, another interesting point is a legend that goes on in the town of Centralia. And it's also tied to the Molly Maguires that the first Roman Catholic priest in Centralia, Father Daniel Ignatius McDermott, cursed the Molly Maguires and the land, saying that one day, the St. Ignatius Roman Catholic Church will be the only remaining structure in Centralia. He was also accosted by the Molly Maguires, so he was pretty upset. Now, as a mining town, Centralia peaked in the very late 1800s, and by 1890, according to federal census, the town had a population of 2,761 people, five hotels, 27 saloons, seven churches, two theaters, one bank, 14 general and grocery stores, and one post office. So a lot going on there. I mean, that's definitely a start. That's at the peak. That's not a start. That's a start to me. Because, uh, again, big city girl. <laughs> For a town of just around 2,700 people, there's 27 saloons, by the way. Oh, well, that's the 100 people per saloon. That's quite a bit of saloons. <laughs> You're, I, I'm not sure how to tap that one. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the town would see its first decline in population in 1917 when the U.S. entered World War I. And like many male populations in many cities going off to war at this time, there was a decrease and productivity decrease in population and this caused the production of anthracite to decline in the coal region of Pennsylvania and after the war there were also several worker strikes which caused the production to dip even lower then followed the increase of cheap fuel and that became the new prominent alternative to anthracite when Wall Street crashed in 1929, the Lehigh Valley Coal Company was forced to close five of its mines in Centralia. When the city's economy 
continued to decline, many of the miners began to what is called bootleg mining. And this would mean that they would enter abandoned mines and dig out the coal. Many even resorted to a technique that's called pillar robbing. And this means that they would dig coal from the pillars that supported the roofs of the mines, causing many of them to collapse. This would also lead to a lot of the areas having ground subsidence or subsidence, meaning it makes the ground unstable and could collapse like a sinkhole. And although there was a slight uptick in coal production during World War II, it wasn't enough. In 1950, the Centralia Council bought the rights to the coal beneath the city of Centralia. And that year, the city's population was around 1,986 people. Despite the dwindling population, mining was still very important to the residents, would continue to do so up until the 1960s, which is where I leave off and Lauren comes in. Okay. So imagine back in the 1960s, Centralia has a, quite the population in a landfill that's just kind of like a city landfill. Gross. And getting way too full. It was at a point becoming just overflowing, not becoming, but it was just overflowing and a solution was necessary to clean it out. And what was decided by the town's council members who held a meeting on this was to, well, their solution, as they like to call it, was to, you wanna, you wanna take a guess at what the solution was, Melissa? Oh, I already know it. Go for it. Oh, they wanna set it on fire. Yeah. There's a reason to send it up at our one of our, our sources things because I thought you'd find the topic really interesting. Oh, it's hysterical. Let's light a landfill on fire above some burning coal mines. The coal mines weren't burning quite yet, but it wasn't. But it's very, like it's like let let's burn the coal mines down. Well, yes, but no, but if anthracite is really hard to ignite, they probably didn't realize that they would be lighting it on fire because it takes a lot of heat to light anthracite on fire, which burns at a very high heat. But it wasn't also an uncommon practice at the time to burn trash. It's no. not a good practice, but it wasn't an uncommon practice. Oh, absolutely. It definitely was not uncommon. And it, however, also was not smart on their part. So they make the decision and they decide, well, we have to find a way to keep the fire contained to the, just the landfill, not spread. So they did a fire retardant lining around the landfill pit because they literally dug a pit and that was the landfill. And once the lining was in place, they set it on fire. Of course, after the majority of the trash had burned that was in the landfill you know they snuff the ashes they snuff it out snuff out the fire and you're basically left with just you know ashes and whatnot and a few embers here and there from the fire however while they thought the fire was out boy were they wrong <laughs> it was still burning just beneath the ground so just beneath the ground, like you, you're going to see or feel the, the heat 
from underneath coming up at some point and you're going to see some smoke and you're just like what's going on that's and and that's exactly how the residents felt and the town's firefighters ended up digging through the the ashes or embers of the landfill pit and uh well they found a hole that had originally been covered in trash and the hole was about 15 feet wide and it led right down into the coal mines beneath the town whoops whoops the daisy 15 feet's a pretty big hole yeah a lot of trash to cover that hole so it was completely missed therefore no fire retardant was poured down it nothing and again it leads right into the coal mines so whew, coal mines let on fire uh, a mine inspector was brought in to town and the mine inspector said there's a rather large amount of carbon monoxide coming out of these uh these mines after the discovery of the fire a letter was sent out to the lehigh valley coal company stating there was a mine fire by the way it was quote of unknown origin end quote <laughs> because of course it was i mean they're not going to take responsibility for it and the lehigh valley coal company along with the council and the susquehanna coal company met to discuss how to douse the fire out however by that time it's far too late and the carbon monoxide was beginning to reach high levels and carbon monoxide is not good thumbs down to carbon monoxide for humans carbon monoxide very deadly carbon very monoxide. very yeah. silent and deadly very silent and deadly you are correct with that one due to the carbon monoxide levels the mines were immediately shut down which they should have been beforehand anyway since you know there's a giant fireball inside of them but not my decision to make <laughs> and what ended up occurring was quite a few attempts to stop the fires not very good attempts but to stop the the coal mine fires below Centralia, Pennsylvania. And like I said, they weren't very good and they all failed. And the first attempt was to dig up the roads and other things in order to expose the mine fires to extinguish them. I love Melissa's face expression in that one. She's like, what? That is not going to help. I mean, we were going to possibly tack this on to the end, but I might as well just mention it right now. These are the Darvaza gates to hell in Turkmenistan or gates fire I think it's called not quite exactly the same thing but it's also an underground fire and very large and that's been burning since the 70s if I remember correctly and if I was I was reading an, an article about it the other day because I wasn't sure if we we're going to tack it on at the end but there's people that have been coming over the years like experts on fires and stuff and like no if we dig a hole over here at the Durvaza fire and expose more oxygen maybe it'll you know lessen it or something like that 
but every time they dig a hole it allows the fire to continue more so it's burning a lot farther than they realize and same thing here this uh, this fire just by exposing it isn't going to do much because you're just exposing one portion of it putting that out and then there's still coal there and it's just going to keep lighting on fire another major part of the problem is that well plan was a uh, quite a uh, costly not only was it costly they did not realize how much excavation they needed to do at the time in order to stop the fire therefore the project ended up running out of money and of course it failed and there's still a fire burning underneath central pennsylvania the second attempt was to use a combination of water and crushed rock. Again, it was ill-timed as temperatures, it was done kind of probably during winter, it would seem as temperatures were low, which meant all the water lines were freezing. And there's also the concern of how much of the mixture they had on hand. They decided to conserve some of the mixture. I'm not exactly sure why, but okay. And they only filled up the mines about halfway, which again leaves room for coal to continue to burn. And once that water evaporates in that burning fire, the rest of the coal that was underneath the water dries up and reignites. Once again, the attempt ran out of funding, but before they quit, they went 20 grand over budget. And like I said, it just continued to burn. <laughs> and just a reminder, anthracite burns at very high heat. It burns blue and is very hard to ignite. That was the end of the attempts during that time in the beginning. And they finally just gave up. And in the 1980s, it became a huge problem because of, well, as we said, carbon monoxide poisoning. The heat underneath is destroying the earth. You can't grow anything. Things are turning into ash. The road is just breaking apart along with the sidewalks. It's just caving in. And in 1981, a 12 year old boy almost died because underneath him the earth just crumbles and he got lucky because he was able to grab on to a uh, tree root as he was falling and his cousin ended up coming and pulling him out but he almost died and in 1983 the state of Pennsylvania had already spent more than seven million dollars in their attempts to control and contain the fire and they decided that by this point it's time we need to call it quits and people just need to hitchhike it out well of course these are people who own their homes their residents that you you're, you can't just ask them to give all of that up with nothing to show for it and so the federal government gave 42 million, 40, I'm going to repeat that number, $42 million to purchase the city of Centralia, Pennsylvania. 
so that they could demolish the buildings and they could pay to relocate the residents. Well, there's always a hitch in that, isn't there, Melissa? Not that everyone wanted to leave. Correct. Oh, just to just to pop in for a quick second on this. I looked it up because apparently I didn't do that before. Anthracite, again, with the cleanest burning of coal, burns blue and is difficult to ignite. Typically burns around 900 degrees or higher. So that that fire is freaking hot. And then imagine it spreading throughout the base of the town. Because the mines just run underneath this town. I guess this is a terrible time to tell you. Uh, you got to give up your homes to the state and find somewhere else to live. <laughs> Well, at least it's not so much they're just buying it out because they can. It is a health hazard. Yes, it is. And so 1983, they go to buy out the town, all that stuff, right? Well, like we said, not everyone wants to leave. And, well, it becomes a legal issue. It became, it, and, and these legal battles took about 10 years to settle. And in 1993, 63 people remained in town and they became considered squatters in what was their own homes because they owned them technically, except that they had owned them, but the state had bought them. So, and they refused to leave, which makes you a squatter. And from 1993 to 2013, the town continued to function like a town just with a fire beneath them and carbon monoxide seeping through the ground and the grounds opening up i don't get why you wouldn't want to leave there's a chance that in the middle of the night the ground can open up and swallow you whole i don't get that i from a certain ex uh, from a certain point i don't get it either but particularly you Let's see, where do I want to go with this? Um, if you got a very long family history in a specific area and you're born and raised in that area, you're not likely going to want to leave the area. Oh, I get that. But also, I don't want to die for that history either. I kind of want to live, continue that legacy. Some people don't see it that way. To each their own in how you see things. I personally wouldn't do that, but again, my understanding of it is very different from everybody else's, from a next person, from you even, Melissa. The way we see things is always going to be slightly different. So by the time 2013 rolls around, there's nobody, basically, other than 10 people. And they actually, because, you know, but the legal battles are still technically going, uh, they ended up winning a settlement and they were awarded $349,500. And they are able to continue to keep the ownership. Basically, they're the, 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 the words. Their homes are theirs. The state does not own them anymore. And they are allowed to continue to live there until they die. Upon their death, 
the land that they have there will go to the state. Like, no, it, it cannot be inherited by the next generation. That's fair. And uh, then at once these the last remaining residents have passed away, they will demolish everything in Centralia. It'll just be gone. A lot of people are just, they're very stalwart and don't want to move. And in present day, there's less than five people left. So half the population died. And I don't know, I don't know how much you know about how much coal there is beneath Centralia, Melissa, but it's believed that the fire beneath Centralia, Pennsylvania can burn for about another 250 years. Yeah. Well, when you've got billions of short tons of coal in that region, there's a lot of coal. There's, it's quite a, an interesting thing. I wonder what's going to happen once all the residents are gone and moved on. Like, what's going to happen to Centralia then, you know? Well, um, I don't, did you have information about the post office in your research? No, what were you thinking about? Well, as I mentioned uh, in the first section, to have an official town, you need a post office, right? Yeah. Well, Centralia, I think by the time that this legal fight kind of really took height in the 90s, they stopped delivering the mail. And by 1997, Centralia had no post office. It's considered a lost zip code, which I believe, according to my uh, site that I'm looking at, was 17927. Um, and the post office was officially demolished in 1997. So the residents who still live there are not getting mail, at least via the government, because there is no official post office because Centralia is technically no longer on the, the map. And yet it is. Well, it is for some. And yeah. people will still go there. It's technically it's abandoned ghost town. People will still go there. They'll oh. go. Um, I'm sure there's stories about it being haunted. There are people that will urban explore around Centralia despite the health risks. Oh, yeah. There's really nothing stopping you from going to Centralia. It's not like you're not allowed to go into the town. You're just advised not to go because it's unsafe. But people really? say no. Yeah. What, what makes it unsafe? Is it the carbon monoxide or the fire or the sinkholes? Well, if anything, you're more likely to die from the carbon monoxide poisoning before you get to a sinkhole. And you'll get to the sinkhole before you get to the fire. It's, it's amazing. I think it's it's fascinating how much people are really like, I will never leave, even if it means I die here. And I'm like, okay, I mean, that's your, your free will, man. That's your choice, freedom of choice, free will. All of that is good for you. I'm just not sure why you'd wanna breathe in the carbon monoxide. That's not a way I'd wanna go. Ooh. If I'm going to go, I want to go peacefully and painlessly, not choking. Do you, or feel do you like think, I'm 
drowning in the inability to breathe. Do you think the residents in Centralia have um, uh, taken the batteries out of their carbon monoxide detectors? Oh, probably. <laughs> it's not like there's a, a firefighter station there left anyway to do anything about it. I don't even know if there's a grocery store left. Probably not. They probably have to drive to the nearest town. I believe so. That wouldn't surprise me. Not when you're a town of only five people, which at that point, you're not even a town. You don't have an official zip code. I guess at that point, you're not even a borough. Like I said, it doesn't surprise me. But it's fascinating little town history. Oh, yeah. Something something fun and interesting to learn about that you never would have thought of before, right? Always. That's I think that's awesome about it, but it's still sad though that that happened. Well, technically could have been prevented, but all the steps from the decline of the population starting in the 1900s up until 1962 every measure that was taken to reboost the mining population of the town wasn't enough and they kept trying to do things and trying to do things and then there's the bootleg mining and the pillar robbing and the destruction of the mines and everything everything just was a step closer to the disaster that would become centralia let alone the um the, the trash disaster which of course is the big igniter literally of all of this that was a good one thank you but yeah i don't know i think it's just it's just not the hill i'd want to personally die on in the literal and figure figurative sense neither I, the hill nor the hell you got it yep so how are you feeling? Did you want to talk about the... the Darvazo? Yeah. No. No, I, I mean, I briefly mentioned it, but I, um, the, the episode's about an hour long. I think we're good. Okay. We... I think this is a nice reprieve from the... Two-hour-long episodes that we've been putting out? Yeah. You get a nice it's... short little episode on a really awesome town... And and it's uh, problems today. So, yay! Yeah, so it's a nice reprieve from the part two weird histories we've been having. We do have a part two main episode special coming up, not uh, I believe directly after this, which coincides with our two year anniversary as well. Yeah, so look forward to that. I don't know that we have anything planned at the moment. Suggestions? Send them our way. Yeah. What do you think we should do for a two-year anniversary? If we want to know what you think. In the meantime, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. Bye. Bye-bye.